Hello. I'm back in the Beebwatch saddle after a cycling holiday in Portugal, thankfully still intact, but still sitting on a cushion. Now, what happened when I was away? Well, there was that furor over the Phil and Holly scandal, overcovered by BBC News in the view of many of you. Well, on Wednesday this week, ITV execs were up in front of the DCMS Select Committee to explain their handling of the controversy and saying that they did not have any hard evidence on which they could have acted. They should have asked themselves why young production staff may have been too scared to come forward. If you're working in a casualised industry, on a very short-term contract, on a programme with very powerful presenters whom the network is desperate to please... Is it any wonder you decide to say nothing? Well, the previous day, the same select committee grilled BBC execs over a range of issues, in particular the handling of changes to BBC local radio. The Director-General, Tim Davey, gave a feisty performance, but admitted that there had been no formal consultation on the changes, which he was nevertheless determined would go ahead. Meanwhile, Ofcom... The regulator has listened to our interview with Stuart Purvis, the former ITN boss and Ofcom exec, who voiced concerns over GB News on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. That network has had Conservative MPs presenting programmes and interviewing their own Chancellor of the Exchequer. Stuart told me, what Ofcom has done is to redefine a news programme. And it hasn't actually done it in a very public way, by having a consultation or openly changing the guidance. It's done it slightly by stealth. Well, this week an Ofcom spokesperson said, The rules around politicians presenting programmes were first introduced in 2005. Given the rise in the number of current affairs programmes presented by sitting politicians and recent public interest in this issue, we are conducting research to gauge current audience attitudes towards these programmes. And about time too. Well, now to this week's interview, which is about a different type of scrutiny. I'm talking to Martin Rosenbaum, who was, until 18 months or so ago, the executive producer of political programmes at the BBC in Westminster, overseeing programmes such as Political Thinking with Nick Robinson and The Week in Westminster, as well as editing and producing numerous political documentaries. He spent 23 years at the BBC, playing an extraordinary role during the Hutton Inquiry, which followed the suicide of a UK government adviser, BBC News claims of a, quote, sexed-up report into Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, and suggestions that the then-Prime Minister, Tony Blair, knew key claims about Iraq's alleged possession of certain weapons were untrue. It was one of the most damaging controversies in the BBC's history, and led to the resignation of the Director-General Greg Dyke and the Chair, Gavin Davis. But more of that in this second part of our interview. For 16 years, Martin Rosenbaum was the leading specialist in utilising freedom of information for journalism in BBC News. And he's just published his book, Freedom of Information, a Practical Guidebook. And I'm delighted that Martin is with me now. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, the Freedom of Information Act was supposed to change journalism and politics. Martin, has it done either? It's done them both, but only to a limited extent, it's got to be said. So in terms of journalism, it's provided journalists with a new tool that they didn't have before 2005. And there are some journalists who've used that very effectively in order to get stories in the public interest that otherwise wouldn't have happened. 
On the other hand, for many journalists, they never use it at all because it's very slow and it doesn't fit with their deadlines. In terms of government, I think you can point to some examples where it's meant more information is in the public domain and that serves the public interest. But a lot of the time it hasn't really affected anything very much. So I think you'd say that it's brought about small, significant, valuable improvements, but nobody could really claim that it's totally transformative. So, Martin, can we get a sense of the scale of this? How many people do you think um, make freedom of information uh, requests? There was one poll which suggested that 14% of the British population had put in an FOI request. Now, even if you don't quite believe that, maybe some of them were actually putting in data protection requests about themselves and got confused by the terminology, as a lot of people do. It's absolutely clear that millions of people in the UK have put in FOI requests. That is certainly true. And so there are a lot of people who are trying to find out more information, whether it's from their local authority, could be the police, the ambulance, the fire service, or from central government. So there certainly is a demand for making more use of the FOI law. And if I could just say one word about my book, uh, I think what the book would do is all those people who are trying to make FOI requests, they'll make better informed and more successful FOI requests if they read my book. I mean, tell me about what you think when you were particularly working for the BBC and using, you know, the FOI. What are the sort of major coups do you think you achieved through that that wouldn't have been possible without it? So I'm going to take two examples at diametric ends of the spectrum, so to speak, of how I think FOI worked effectively in the journalism we did. So one example is at the high end of politics. Another is at the direct daily impact of public services on people's lives, which is also what FOI is about, as indeed journalism is about both of those things. So at the high end, one of the things that I was able to do, and it took a lot of persistence appealing to the information commissioner in the face of obstruction from the cabinet office, was to show how Prince Charles, as he was then, now King Charles, had lobbied Tony Blair over various environmental issues. For example, Charles did not want genetically modified foods to be developed for that research to go on. So that's an example of the sort of lobbying that was going on at the highest level within government and the state. On the other hand, and again, there was a lot of resistance to this, but after 18 months, uh, and again complaining to the Information Commissioner, I managed to get released data which showed which makes and models of cars were most likely to fail MOT tests. The Department for Transport resisted that on the basis it was commercially confidential information, blah, blah, blah. But the Information Commissioner ruled in my favour. That information is now published regularly, annually, as just routine data. So people who want to buy cars are more informed about the reliability of vehicles. You've got two really diametrically sort of, you know, ends of the spectrum things there, but it illustrates the range of FOI. And that wouldn't have come out without the FOI. But you were operating uh, with the BBC behind you, a big organisation uh, that could, you know, you could keep on going and going and going. Individuals who don't have the backing of a large media organisation or whatever will find it surely much more difficult. So it's undoubtedly true that it was part of my job to be doing this and therefore I was able to devote time and resources to it. And that's one of the functions of journalism, that you're able to do these things in the public interest that people may not have the time to do themselves. Well, it's a function of some forms of journalism, but increasingly, as we see, you know, organisations squeezed, 
the ability to do this long-term forensic investigation is going to be limited to a handful of players, isn't it? Or do you think that, you know, and obviously you, think, you probably do think, you haven't written the book you did, that the individual still can have an impact if they have the, just the energy and the resilience to do it? Uh, absolutely. Uh, individuals certainly have made a difference. And there are plenty of examples of individuals who've put in FOI requests that have actually led to significant news stories. And it's partly about having the determination and the persistence. It's also sometimes they may have a bit of inside knowledge. They may have something from their own personal experience. They want to see how general that is. They may know something that the journalists don't know. So, and absolutely individuals who are concerned about fighting their own corner pursuing their own causes, do establish information via FOI, and it's a very useful tool for them. But the more informed you are about how to use it, the more likely you are to actually get the information you want. If you write requests which are well-structured, which are precise, which take account of what the law says, you're more likely to get useful information than if you send in very generalised requests which don't really relate to the requirements of the law. Well, Martin, you must have been a pain in the neck for a lot of politicians. Well, I know you were, because let me quote Tony Blair. It doesn't mention you personally, but he was, of course, in incoming Labour government, 97, committed to the Freedom of Information Act. Didn't, I think, actually get carried through until about 2005. But he said this. He, he castigated himself um, for pushing it through. He said he was naive, foolish, uh, irresponsible nincompoop. Uh, he said, for political leaders, it's like trying to say to someone who's hitting you over the head with a stick, hey, try this instead, and handing them a mallet. Um, I suppose you'd wear that with a sort of badge of honour, would you? <laughs> well, I think really what it shows is actually, to a certain extent, FOI was working. FOI is not meant to be convenient for those who hold power. The whole point of it is that it squeezes information out of the system that those people in power do not want to release off their own bat. It's therefore, if it's having an effect, bound to be annoying to them. So the fact that Tony Blair thinks that, the fact, similarly, that David Cameron said that he thought of FOI as one of the buggeration and clutteration factors that cause a nuisance in government, um, that's a good thing that people like that. Yeah, but you see, what they would say is, apart from the need to, you know, be confidential, I mean, actually, with, with the release of WhatsApp set messages and everything else, I mean, if I'm sitting, if I was a minister, I wanted to have a confidential conversation, and honestly, I think, what would I do? Walk out in the garden, get rid of civil servants, take my, my friend's phone away? I mean, there has to be somewhere in government where you can honestly speak what you think in the knowledge that you're not going to be immediately reported, not least if you're talking about things that could have in intense foreign office you know, implications. Absolutely, I completely accept that, but there's provision for that in the FOI Act, and what it says is that those kind of issues should come down to the overall balance of the public interest. In some cases, it's more important that the public is better informed and the information is out there. In other cases, it's more important to protect what is sometimes called a safe space for internal discussion so that people can have confidential discussion. So the FOI Act actually provides for that. And I think that's quite, you know, it's right that it does. That's fair enough. But politicians say, well, actually, what you're doing a lot of the time is going on fishing expeditions. Uh, you know, you pretend to look for one thing, basically, you're trying to pick up anything. And, and that's one of the things that irritates them. Have you ever gone on a fishing expedition? 
So I think of myself in terms of fishing, not like a, you know, big factory fishing ship that is sweeping up everything it can get its hands on, but more on some kind of precise angler. I've got to say, I don't do fishing myself. So I'm, you know, working with this metaphor that you've introduced. I'm not sure really of the precise technical terms. I won't ask you which flies you should use now. <laughs> you obviously know more about it than I do, but I'm sure there is some fishing term and maybe you can provide it for, you know, being very specific and targeted in terms of your fishing and that is the kind of thing that I was trying to do. Well I think I'd probably say you'd have to use a rod and line rather than a net. I know nothing about fishing too so one of our listeners will point that out but could you just tell us about some of the 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 most difficult areas and the classic delaying tactics that are used. I mean uh, let's which areas are the most difficult to get information about? The ones you would expect the security services defense? Yeah so the security services are completely excluded from FOI you can't get anything at all about them under FOI. Defence is obviously a very sensitive subject. The Royal Household, as an organisation, is excluded from FOI. Communications with the monarch and with the heir to the throne, that has been tightened up. But there are some exceptions where you might get some information, as I did in the Prince Charles case I referred to, which is environmental information, which is easier to get. Uh, but one of the problems here, of course, with, is, is presumably two areas. One is... Um, the government, who decides what's sensitive? And, for example, I'd love to find out what happened in Gibraltar in uh, uh, when I did a programme called Death on the Rock with Thames Television about 1988 and find out what happened. I can't. You can't get anywhere near that. Um, there, so it's a question of who defines what you can get close to. Uh, and then the other thing, of course, is that lots of things don't get written down, obviously. I mean, my experience working within the BBC of some of the meetings that I went to was the minutes represented what people thought should have been said rather than what actually was said. And sometimes the minutes had conclusions which were written a day later um, and hadn't been given at the meeting itself. So you would not know that if you were checking. So there are all these fundamental problems, aren't they? I mean, in getting at what really happened. There are all these problems. I mean, one of the things just, you know, as a journalist, as an investigative journalist, is it's always difficult. It's not a good idea to rely on one source. As well as written documentation, you want to speak to the people involved and get a broader picture of what happened. And the broader picture you have, the more that you know. So there can be all these kinds of issues. Uh, absolutely, that's right. In terms of FOI, I think, though, the key practical problem, I've got to say, is delay rather than anything to do with resistance and obstruction it's the amount of delay that is built into the system and if public authorities need say they need longer to assess the public interest in giving you information they can extend that process for as long as it is considered reasonable under the law which is a very vague criteria and so uh, especially for journalists who want to get their stories quickly delay is a big problem and how you deal with that is a very important issue as a requester have you been ever lied to directly lied to by government who've said that certain documents did not exist when you are pretty sure they knew they did exist and indeed in the end perhaps they had to produce well i don't know whether i would use the word lie i certainly have had the experience of putting an foi request um and at first they say we don't hold any documents of the sort that meet your description and then Afterwards, they say, we found them and we're not going to give them to you anyway because we think it's against the public interest. I've also had, bizarrely, the converse thing, which is they say, we're not going to give you these documents that you've asked for because it's against the public interest to do that. And when I appeal against it, they say, we don't actually hold these documents that we've just told you we're not going to give you. And... (laughs) 
So it's, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, it could be that they're not telling the truth. It could be that they've got this instinctive reaction that we say, we're not going to give it to you. And then they discover that it doesn't actually exist anyway when they're really forced to go and look for it. And their instinctive reaction is just to resort to secrecy in the first place. Now, some people listening to this conversation um, and who don't work for the BBC or whatever may think, hold on, you know, BBC isn't exactly Caesar's wife in this area. <laughs> you know, uh, it's very keen on getting information using an FI request from other organisations, but you try and get certain information out of the BBC. Um, what was your experience uh, between, say, when you were working with somebody like Mark Thompson, who was DG, and then later on with the administration of Tony Hall? Yeah, so it's certainly true that a lot of people who want information from the BBC feel uh, unhappy with the replies that they get. One reason is that the BBC has a exclusion from FOI for information that relates to journalism. So information that relates to programme-making and journalism, people can't get. They can only get administrative and management uh, information from the BBC, and they, they complain about that. Sometimes, But what I think I would say in terms of the overall feeling of attitudes towards FOI within the BBC during the the time that I was there, the BBC had a quite ambiguous attitude towards FOI. Some people did anyway, precisely because it both sent FOI requests, people like me, and it received FOI requests. And when Mark Thompson was Director General... I felt, and this is not basically got to say on direct discussions with him, but this is people who talked to him who then talked to me, so it's kind of radiated down. There was a very clear feeling the BBC is primarily a journalistic organisation. It's true, FOI might sometimes embarrass us, but we want maximal FOI in terms of the legislation. Once Tony Hall became Director General, and again, it's not based on direct conversations I had with him, it's people who spoke to him who then spoke to me, and I was trying to negotiate with over details of how the BBC should respond to various government consultations. There, the feeling was less like that. It was more, well, on the one hand, it's good. On the other hand, it's bad. We don't want people asking questions in a way that embarrasses us. We've got to trade that off against what our journalists do. So... I felt that with there was a kind of switch between director generals in the way that that kind of those kind of values from the top were radiated down to people like me. Well, I'm going to talk to Tony Hall. I hope next week, so I might ask him about that. But it, but I mean, I don't know whether it's indicative. You know, I talked to uh, Mark Thompson. I used to be my researcher a thousand years ago, um, and when he was DG on feedback, and then uh, uh, Tony Hall wouldn't appear, and others haven't appeared subsequently. But I think that the, the fact is that the BBC now feels more vulnerable. Um, you know, more competitors under a, a tighter financial cosh, if you like, though it did start, certainly Mark Thompson felt that. And it becomes this defensive organisation which says it believes in accountability and demands it of others and is, in my experience, a rather too reluctant to be truly accountable itself. Perhaps understandably, but it's rather sad. So you must have felt a little bit, did you not feel when you were working within the BBC and chasing these FOI um, requests that a bit of a hypocrite... I mean, you know, I felt that sometimes, you know, on feedback saying to people, well, BBC is accountable and saying, well, can I honestly say that it is partially and there were people committed, absolutely good people in the BBC committed to to be accountable. But there were quite a few who just wanted to shut things down. And indeed, in terms of, uh, well, should I say this, in terms of the Martin Bashir interview, whatever, I think you would find if you went through the BBC archives that they're remarkably 
if not exactly empty, shall we say cleansed of some material? So, um, well, you know, I was always very happy to appear on feedback. I appeared on feedback a couple of times and, you know... You did, thank you. All these emails, people complaining about my (laughs) (laughs) programmes. No, no, right, I'll give you a pass, sorry. No, I shouldn't have made those comments, but I do feel it. I really do feel it. Yeah, no, 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 but I understand... but But I think your point is true, actually. I mean, I know, you know, people, again, in the BBC press office or in radio management they used to complain to me about feedback and say oh why are feedback banging on about this it's really annoying and a nuisance but that again it's a bit like foi that's feedback doing its job it's meant to be a a nuisance so well done but just did i feel a hypocrite the answer is no because i had my job my job was a journalist i was to uh you know it's to put in FOI requests, all the other journalistic things I did. I sometimes gave advice to BBC journalists who were putting in FOI requests to the BBC. Our job as BBC journalists was to act independently of any of those wider, broader, you know, concerns of the corporation as to any incoming FOI requests or anything like that. And that, you know, that was what we were employed to do. I didn't feel at all hypocritical about pursuing that line. No, and I find now guilty about raising that charge because, I mean, I remember when I used to work in Lime Grove, but also now, you know, if Panorama could investigate Newsnight and prove Newsnight had screwed up, they would do so with relish. <laughs> John Ware, somebody said of John Ware, I think, uh, uh, complaining inside the BBC about John Ware investigation and, and saying resignedly, oh, John will hold us up to the impossibly high standards that he holds of everybody else. And so he should, and so he should. Let's, however, I just want to conclude our interview, really, with talking about something where... FOI didn't play a part, but there was it was an inquiry because it contained journalism. It was the Hutton inquiry, and you were very close to the events which surrounded the BBC's reporting of um, uh, whether or not uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. He clearly had at one stage. Whether he still had weapons of mass destruction, the claim that within 45 minutes, not quite clear what it meant, some terribly destructive thing could happen and so on. The way BBC handed that information and... The context clearly was um, a hyperactive um, Alistair Campbell bombarding the BBC with accusations of bias and a whole range of other things, and an unfortunate broadcast, I think, in your view, which on the specifics of whether or not the government knew that the claim, the 45-minute claim, was true. The government knew it wasn't true and deliberately put forward. And on that rather narrow but important area... There was a lot of trouble. Can you just fill us in in the background of your conclusions, what you were doing at the time and what your conclusions are about that incident? Yeah, so um, I was brought in really as a journalist to join the BBC's management team that were working on this because they wanted someone with a sort of journalistic approach to work through all the evidence, to do research uh, and so on. So I was brought in really in that capacity. Uh, And I certainly did learn lessons from seeing what I witnessed then. Uh, And I think I'd say something, maybe something a bit narrow and something a bit broader. I think one of the things I learned was only in terms of complaining, that when you make a complaint, only complain about the things that you're right about. If Alistair Campbell had only complained about the things that he was right about, that would have possibly set things down a different course. It's also true, on the other hand, that if you get a complaint and a lot of it is obviously wrong... You've got to actually work through the whole thing to see if some of it is actually right. And that turned out to be the case, that some of Campbell's complaints were right uh, in this particular case. And the BBC management should 
have worked through the whole thing much more carefully and established that. And again, things could then have gone down a different course. And I think they didn't, in part, in my view, in part, was because there was a highly, apart from the Alistair, the height of emotion involved in all of this, uh, of course, the issue, had, uh, the issue split the country. So, you know, people, families would be arguing that was going on. Alistair Campbell was hammering the BBC constantly, and my view and others, frequently unfairly. But you also had, in terms of a chairman and a director general of the BBC, two people who were very close or had been very close to the Labour Party. Indeed, uh, the chairman's wife, Sue Nye, was the, really the personal assistant of Gordon Brown. Greg Dyke had been a member of the Labour Party as director general and had and it paid for them. So there was, a, there was a slight element of an argument within the family as well. And I felt that uh, the chairman and the director general were almost so determined to demonstrate their independence from government because they felt slightly vulnerable that, again, that that sort of meant them less likely to look forensically at what happened. But there was a moment, I was talking to one or two people, when they were truly shocked in the BBC camp when they'd given evidence to Hutton and when the journalist involved modified, shall we say, his evidence. It was a pretty dreadful moment, wasn't it? Were you there at that time? So I, I wasn't personally um, at the inquiry. I didn't attend the inquiry. I watched everything on screen. But I'd say, you know, I thought there were a number of points during the inquiry where things went, you know, not exactly in the way that we were expecting to. And I wouldn't particularly pick on that. But I think your point, however, about Greg and Gavin is completely correct, that I think because of their Labour background, they were very determined to stand up and prove their independence from the government. Uh, so I think that was a factor. I think Alistair Campbell's bombardment of the BBC over a long period with letters and letters and letters of complaint is also a factor. Rich, I remember Richard Sandbrook saying, he was any news, Richard Sandbrook, um, he had a fax machine in his office still. Most people have switched to email. The only faxes that poured out of his fax machine were junk faxes trying to sell, I don't know, photocopiers or whatever, and faxes from Alistair Campbell. And... You know, they would both pour out of his fact machine <laughs> regularly. Some people might say they were equally kind of junkish. But it did turn out that, you know, some of what Alistair Campbell, not all of it, not even most of it, but some of it was true. And then the judge, of course, didn't give you a sort of balanced judgment. He was either like you used to go to the Broadcast Complaints Commission with 20 complaints against us, and they'd find on one of them, and the headline in the newspapers and everywhere else was BBC found guilty, and there'd be no mention of the 19 other charges where we hadn't been. So there's always that problem. But I think that the, the, the lessons, I would say there are two lessons of this, and, and, and first of all, well, two lessons, there are many of them. The first is somebody has to own a story from the beginning and monitor and watch the story. Somebody has to be with a reporter at the beginning and, as it were, stick through with them, monitoring the story on such a, such a controversial issue all the way through. And what tended to happen, in my view, looking back on that issue, is that lots of people then came in, picked up the story, developed it, but actually nobody owned it in terms of being responsible with the reporter for ensuring that everything was true and proper. Is that your view? Uh, absolutely. And um, so one of the tasks that I had as part of the work I was doing on for this for the team, as I remember, was to go through every news bulletin that day, BBC News Bulletin, a different outlet, different channels, different networks, and look at the stories that had been done about this. And 
the phraseology was all very different. And the result was that some of them had got things slightly wrong. Some of the things had really kind of missed the point. It wasn't like one consistent story, which the BBC was putting out throughout the day on all its outlets. Things were all over the place. And I think there was a lack of overall scrutiny and editorial oversight of the story on the day for that reason. But perhaps in, just in terms of lessons, can I just say what I think the really big lesson is of the whole process on the government side and on the BBC side? And for, you know, all of us as individuals, in a way, the thing I learned was the perils of groupthink. The government suffered from groupthink on the strength of the intelligence that Blair and the others and internally within the intelligence services, they didn't challenge the weaknesses in the intelligence strongly enough. They were trapped in groupthink. They didn't lie, but they allowed themselves to be trapped in groupthink, yeah? Yeah, I don't think they lied. They believed it sincerely. Because they believed it sincerely, they actually... They stripped out the... This is what it says in the Butler report on the intelligence. They stripped out the caveats. They stripped out the qualifications. They made the intelligence seem stronger than it actually was. So that was therefore... On the BBC side, we were trapped in a kind of groupthink of feeling we must really stand up to them. We've got to demonstrate our independence... You know, they didn't have the voices saying, hang on a minute, is this intelligence really right? We didn't have the voices saying, hang on a minute, are you absolutely sure that every detail in this story is correct? Maybe there are some flaws in it. Maybe we need to check everything out really thoroughly. So on both sides, I th- uh, there was this kind of group thing, which, and then the, 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 the conflict between the two just got both sides deeper and deeper and deeper into their positions rather than actually thinking, well, hang on a minute, maybe we're not quite right about this. You see, what baffled me about this was that uh, when I was involved in this round, 30 years now, death, uh, 30 years ago now, uh, slightly more, Death on the Rock, when the yeah. government attacked, Mrs Thatcher's government attacked uh, Thames Television and the programme I was uh, doing uh, this week for its, for its coverage, um, and the newspapers piled in, it was a terrible row. Um, what in the end, uh, Thames uh, directors said, well, OK, this is, this is going on too long. Uh, we'll have to have an independent inquiry with people agreed by effectively the government as well. So they got a QC. They got a, a minister who, a former Conservative minister, but somebody who understood about, uh, who understood about television. Order. They did the inquiry. They said they'd publish the result, uh, results to give them all the money they needed. Just go and do it. That bought them. That took the level down and that bought them time. Now, fortunately, you know, when they reported, they very, very largely supported us as broadcasters and so on. But it took it out of of that heated atmosphere. Now, when the row was going on uh, with, uh, you know, over this uh, 45 minutes and so on in the Iraq, I sent a note to a very senior BBC person saying, this is what you've got to do because this is the way out. You know, point out as to come as bullying, but say on this matter, we're a public service broadcaster, of course there has to be an independent inquiry because it's so importantly, it's contested. And they didn't do it. Now, it's now, you can see Caroline McCall this week, you know, faced with the Philip Schofield business saying, we've got a KC in. Everybody now does it. It still baffles me that the BBC then didn't say, OK, we're confident about our journalism. We'll bring in a QC. OK, so uh, I don't, I can't, directly address that point but I think I know who you sent the note to because one of the tasks that I was asked to do at one point was to look into the Death on the Rock program the Windlesham inquiry as it then was into it Uh, and I had to write a report about what were the similarities between that and the situation we were in and what were the dissimilarities so I wrote that report and I passed it on so am am I right do you agree with me or not that actually what they should have done is get get proper inquiry independent inquiry and agree to abide by what it said 
Uh, well, I think in retrospect, that clearly would have been a, a better decision. I think there are other ways out of it. I don't think that's the only one. I think that's, you know, one that could have worked. Um, there were other ways out of the sort of defensive position that basically both sides had got into. But, you know, nobody reached that alternative. Uh, and in the end, it was disastrous for the BBC. And finally, Martin, back to where we began on freedom of information, I cannot believe that a person like you, uh, even having written this book on, on the app, is going to stop actively putting in applications yourself. Um, are, you, uh, are you going to do that? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Um, so I, I do put in FOI requests. Of course, right now I'm trying to think of what is the best angling metaphor to describe the FOI <laughs> process. You, you know, carrying on with the FOI process now, I don't know. I, yeah, I make FOI requests and I write about answers I receive on my blog and on my website. And yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, well, if any of those people who are listening go to our uh, blog and you will, uh, on my blog, you'll find out the details of that. Uh, Martin Rosenbaum, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And you can find a link to Martin's book, Freedom of Information, a Practical Guidebook, in the description of this programme, where you will also find our contact information and the link to support our journalism. It'll cost you less than £2 a month. Please do consider doing so. Next week, we hope to be interviewing former BBC Director General Tony Hall. Let us know if you have any questions for him. And if you didn't know already, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios. And special thanks to Quinn Genty. It was a good egg production. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>